Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 534. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Host, host with the most. Just want to say a massive thank you for coming on. Listen to Starship Sova. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. The main fiction is When I Close My Eyes by Chris Barnum, which was originally published in a fine magazine, Interzone. Then we have, right at the end of the show, it's the end of the month. Come on, we know it's Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now we've had a bit of a surge since last week. Last week, Perion, we had 407. Today, we have 411. We've peaked over that. 410. I mean, it might fall away. Next week, because we, you know, we pay a day, everyone. <laughs> but 411, first time we've been at that figure. Wow, thank you so much. So I just want to say, here we go. Big thank you to... <laughs> now, Sprinkle Face is in brackets, but Des Desmona. Big thank you for that, for that little kind of pledge. Thank you so much, Desmona. Sprinkle face. Sean Billings. Sean. Big bear. Glad. Thank you so much. And Ken Saint. What a name, man. It's like James Bond. Ken. <laughs> Fantastic. And Gary Ormsby there. Gary. Gary, you see. <laughs> Gabe, man. <laughs> hey, man. Gabe Ormsby, Gabe, thank you so much. Butchered you there straight away without even noticing. Everyone, thank you so much. Honestly, it means the world, it really does. So if you want to kind of keep, don't let me dip under the, the, the 410 next week. Come on, get over there, a couple of quid, and you'll support what on Patreon. And I've just gotten the final files back for, you know what we did, the Silverberg silent invaders we're now doing the martian sphinx oh it's coming soon but i've now getting the audio by that and it's john brunner yes and we did john brunner i think possibly number two in was it number two in the very first you know when starships myself and kieran did that we we looked at brunner might have been number three but and i haven't seen brunner anywhere in audio you know, on podcasts and anything like that. So this would be, this will be remarkable, to be quite honest. And Drew Sebatini has landed the narration and oh, it's just sweet as a nut. So that's coming soon as well. So that's a good reason to pop over there 
on Patreon. That will be at the $5 mark if you wanted that as well. What else has been happening? Oh, I'll tell you what. Before that, we you know if last week we had kind of a spoiler little chat, total spoiler little chat about Lost in Space. And there's a few things, you know, it was the end of the show. And I'm not going to spoil anything this that's this week, but it was you know thank you everyone that got in touch with us and sent emails and you know just chatted about it. It seems to be like going in the in the right direction. I'm happy. I'm I'm not happy with one aspect of it, but it seems. And I watched I watched one last night, and yes, still loving it. You know what I mean? Still loving it. And I've even signed up now to for. It's now TV over here for Westworld, and I think I think I've got one. There's one already, or it's tonight when it comes out. So it might have been last night. I'm not 100 percent sure, but it's so close. But this is all leading up to. I want to just say a big thank you to Mac Lundy. Mac actually explained it, you know, because I've got a problem with Doctor Smith on in this show. For me, she just doesn't. It's just a waste of time of a character. It's like it's sloppy writing. There's no kind of tension. There's no end goal. But Max, and I couldn't, you know, was this the case in the original, do you know? Because I haven't watched the original Lost in Space. But Mac put it all for us, so I'm kind of up on it now. He says, in the original, Dr. Smith is an agent for a foreign power that wants the U.S. space colonization effort to fail by sabotaging the Jupiter 2, but gets trapped on board when the ship launches. Now, he's mainly there to, you know, provide comic effects in the series. So it is, I guess, even in, in the first one, a bit of a kind of shallow character. And for me, in Lost in Space, this one, you know, he's hoping. You know, he says the, you know, Parker Posey's Dr. Smith, who, the, the, the actress who plays, will, you know, be a, a much more important role. It's still, I'm still struggling. There's no, like... There's no effort, there's no reason why it's going on. It's, it's it's sloppy kind of driven work if you're just saying, oh, well, that's the way she is. Do you know what I mean? But there's nothing that shows that. But anyways, I, I dare not see anyone in case I kind of spoil it. But just I've got a, a little problem with that character. But if, apart from everything else... I love the show. Do you know what I mean? I think the show is fantastic. So watch it. It's on. It's on Netflix. If it's you know, it's it's a it's a good show. It's got great characters in there. Great tension. You know, and it's proper, proper, like character driven. You know, like issues, social issues, and everything like that. And I love that. So I got a little deep breath there. A little, <laughs> it's just a little bit giddy. <laughs> Let's get into the main fiction. Like I say, it is Chris Barnum, When I Close My Eyes, which was originally published in Interzone Water magazine. Man, Chris Barnum spent a long time working for the British government. Oh, there we go. But now just makes stuff up for himself. When I Close My Eyes first appeared in Interzone in July 2017. Chris's forthcoming novel, 51, features time-travelling cop who is marooned in 1940s London. The story was inspired by a real event, a German V1 rocket that fell on a busy shopping street in South London in July 1944, killing 51 people. It is due out soon from Files Verts Publishing. Chris can be found on Twitter, and there's a little link there to Chris. Now, this story, I haven't, Gareth? I haven't seen Gareth, I heard Gareth for ages. Gareth Stack. Gareth is a writer, radio producer and filmmaker living in Dublin. His radio dramas, documentary and podcasts can be found at Dead Medium Podcast or at his site, garethstack.com. 
Suo. The Starship Sova is very proud to present. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When I Close My Eyes by Chris Barnum. The rockfall killed me. I just didn't know how long it would take to die. I was face down with something heavy on the back of my legs. My visor display was dark. If the suit had lost power, death was already at my elbow. Dak, confirm operational. A soft, insect buzzing. Repeat, confirm operational. Bzz, click. Confirm, but I've had better days, dude. You and me both. Run full systems check. Running, dude. Some joker programmed the suit computer with the voice of Keanu Reeves in Point Break, squinting in the sun and waxing his surfboard. Usually it cheered me up. I chinned the radio switch. Willis, this is Darlow. Do you read? Static. Willis, Darlow. There's some kind of cave-in. I still have power. Checking systems. Are, are you okay? More static. I chinned off the radio. Willis should be fine. She stayed in the crawler. After all, it was another poor sap who entered the cave. Me. I tested the movement in my limbs. Both arms were free. I could lift my left leg, but the right didn't budge. I had sensation in it, but something pinned it down. Something with serious mass, with gravity less than a tenth that of Earth. I could expect to shift a sizable rock unaided. Okay, dude. Systems check complete. Tack sounded as businesslike as he ever did, like he'd just spotted a shift in the swell and zipped up his wetsuit. Batteries 76%. Oxygen 65. Suit intact. Heater cycling between 60 and 90. Nitrogen scrubber... Wait, what's with the heater? The suit's heating systems normally ran around 50%. Losing heat fast. Possible radiator vein compromise. That figured. The suit had fantastic insulation, and in normal use, some heat got vented away through tiny metal filaments in the back. If the rockfall had damaged them, the heater would need to compensate. So how long have I got? You can lie here for nearly five hours, dude. Yeah, but I plan to get moving. Hey, did I mention that the GPS sensors are damaged and I can't get a signal from the crawler or the base? Lucky I know the way out. How long have we got with normal motion? Probably four hours, but the heater's a bummer. Might need to go easy on the other power. Is that why we're lying here in the dark? You didn't say the lights were damaged. They're not. Main flash on. The beam lit up in front of me. I was face down on a layer of ice. When my visor touched the surface, the ice fizzed and crawled upwards as if tiny worms were escaping. Probably traces of frozen methane in amongst the water ice, melting in the slight heat given off by my suit. I lifted my head, directing the beam horizontally. There was about six feet of icy ground ahead of me, ending at a wall of rubble and ice. I pointed the light higher, but I could see no top to the obstruction. 
So far, so bad. But that way led deeper into the cave. That was where I'd been heading when the cave fell in, and I certainly wasn't going that way now. I wanted to go back. I had a simple plan, walk back through the tunnels to Willis and the crawler, and then take it easy with a hot drink while she drove the four miles back to Liga base. All I had to do was remove whatever was trapping my legs, and hope the tunnel behind me wasn't blocked, and hope my power lasted long enough to stop me freezing in the minus 180 degree centigrade temperature. Simple. Tack! Main flash off! Save power while I decide what to do! The beam cut out, and darkness sprang on me from the shadows. My head was still up, and I saw her clearly. She sat with her back against the pile of ice and rock, her legs stretched before her, and her hands in her lap, as if she were at a picnic. She wore the blue dress with the white polka dots that we buried her in. She smiled at me. Not here, dear God! I lowered my head to the ice. For Christ's sake, my eyes are open! I had a psych assessment before we left Earth. It was a standard part of the Titan programme. By launch day they knew everything. Blood pressure, electrical activity of our brains, bowel movements, pH of my semen, you name it. My last session with the shrink was two weeks before launch. Her name was Vanessa Bell. She had an office in the training camp, polished wood floor and beige walls, floor to ceiling window, with a view across the base to the distant needle of the Galileo rocket, with its cat's cradle of support gantries. Dr Bell didn't do couches. We sat in low armchairs and chatted over coffee. I thought we'd finished, when she said, Tell me what you last saw of your wife. I knew it was coming, and I had my answer ready. The last place on the mission was between me and Jacobs. I was at least as equal on physical fitness and the technical skills the crew would need. If they left me behind, it would be because the shrinks had decided he was less flaky than me. There was never any doubt about Willis. The Titan Golden Girl, the first seat on the ship, was always hers. The agency knew where their funding came from and how much safer it would be when they beamed back pictures of gorgeous Felicity Willis suited up and braving the elements. The grunt work was for me or Jacobs and I was determined it would be for me. Your wife, Dr Bell prompted. When did you last see her? Every time I close my eyes. I'm sure it's all in my file. You tell me. Four years ago it was a car crash. Tell me what happened. I took a long breath. I could do this. It was a test like any other. Say the words, tell the story, get out of here smiling, and Jacobs can watch the mission on TV. We'd been away for a few days at the seaside cottage in Cornwall. It was a long drive back, and this trip, was it for any special reason? You're going to make me say it all, aren't you? A celebration, I said. Through the window, two miles away on the launch pad, they were loading supplies. A red crane pirouetted in slow motion. The operator was visible in the cab, a black dot in the pink sky. We've been trying for a baby. She got the positive test result and um, we wanted to celebrate. We didn't tell anyone else at first. It was too early and, and we knew it could easily go wrong. But we treated ourselves to a long weekend by the sea. Sounds idyllic. It was. She was at that early stage of pregnancy when it doesn't show but you get tired and sick. So we didn't do much. Just the two of us. Breakfast in bed and windy walks on the beach kissing on the beach as the wind whipped my face with her hair. A full moon lays a silver trail across the bay, like a ghostly road leading across the sea and into heaven. I see her clearly as I sit in Dr Bell's room, just as I see her in the frozen dark of the cave on Titan. It looks like we could walk along the moonbeam and into the sky, she said. It's a bit harder than that, 
I was already in the programme then, although my chance of actually leaving the earth remained remote. Would you really go away for so long? The wind was cold, and when she wriggled in, she fit perfectly under my arm and against my chest. She always did. I don't know. Not if we have a baby. Surely. You think a baby is harder to leave behind than you? And the accident? Dr. Bell broke in on my thoughts. When did that happen? It's a long drive back to London. Much easier to do at night, when the roads are clear. On the motorway north of Bristol, a lorry skidded across three lanes and hit the car in front of us. I managed to miss them, but it was raining hard, and I lost control. We hit the central barrier and spun round before the car turned over. Everything happened slowly. I heard screaming brakes, car horns, a couple of collisions like hammers hitting panes of glass, but it all sounded far away. The car came to rest upside down, across the two inside lanes. There was a brief moment of calm, as if someone had thrown a switch. We were both hanging from our seatbelts. I turned my head, and she was looking at me. She had such beautiful brown eyes. She said, Are you all right? I said, I'm fine. Hold my hand. She was about to say something else, but I never heard it. I didn't get to hold her hand either. Another car hit us on her side, spinning us round again and shoving us off the motorway and into the grass verge. It took an hour to cut me out. I talked to her that old hour, but she never replied. I'm so sorry, Dr. Bell said. Bad things happen. You can't change them. You just get on with life. Did it make you more determined to get on the mission, for example? It meant I had nothing more to lose. I just got on with my job. I'd say cope with it. It's what she would have wanted. I picked up my coffee, but it had gone cold. The sky beyond the launch pad had washed out to a dirty grey. At the end of the session, I shook Dr. Bell's hand and turned to leave. One thing I noticed, Mr. Darlington, Bell said behind me. You never mentioned your wife's name. What was it? It's in the file, you bitch. Lona. Her name cracked my voice and uncorked my tears. Her name was Lorna. You're not here, I said to Lorna in the Titan cave. Tack, main flash back on, but turn it down to save power. The light came back on and lit up the cave floor and the mound of frozen rubble that walled off the way ahead. No one was there, polka dot dress or otherwise. Tack, I need to get moving. Anything I need to know about what's on my right leg? I can't measure how heavy it is. Composition mostly water ice. Some streaks of frozen ozone. So don't warm it up too much. How are we doing on the suit systems? Batteries down to 68. Jesus, why is it draining so fast? Losing heat, dude. Dial it down another 10%. I'll keep warm once I'm moving. Keep the beam on for now. I got both hands beneath my chest, raised my body, and twisted to the left. I saw what looked like the sheared-off tip of an iceberg across my lower body. It looked big and heavy but there was a hint of shadow above it which gave me hope that I was not completely buried just pinned beneath a fallen chunk of the cave roof. Okay, I think I can see how to shift it. Cut the beam to save power. The light snapped out. Oh, for fuck's sake. In the instant before I lowered my face again to the ice, I saw Lorna on the other side of the rock that pinned my leg. She was still in the impossible blue dress. Her head and shoulders were open to the poisonous Titan atmosphere, which would freeze my lungs in mid-breath if I were to remove my helmet. Problem, dude. Tack, can you detect any heat sources other than me and my suit? None. So, there are no other life forms in here? 
Nobody here but us chickens. I kept my head down and slid my left leg sideways until my ankle pressed against the cave wall. I braced my left hand against the same wall and pushed away so that my lower back pressed hard against the debris on the other leg. The leverage offered by the cave wall did the trick. The rock rose a few inches and I felt my left leg slide along the icy floor towards my left. It came free and I pushed harder, now with both legs braced against the wall. Once the rock moved, the feeble gravity gave me the advantage, and I was able to twist back and out from under before the huge chunk of ice, iron and silicon rocked back into place. I was free. Three months after Lorna died, I was in the lab late, taking advantage of quiet hours to run my computer through the presentation screen, giving me a high-res 8 by 10 views of the latest Cassini 4 shots of Titan. A dark, jagged rectangle surrounded by areas of almost painful brightness. The dark bit was the plane some wit had named Shangri-La. The bright areas around it were almost certainly covered in ice, but we weren't sure what made Shangri-La so dark. Add it to the list of fascinating things we might learn from Saturn's moon. The lakes of liquid methane, with their mysterious shifting coastline and islands, the clouds that might rain methane, ethane and propane, the possible underground ocean, warmer than the surface. The other offices felt quiet after eight. People had homes to go to, families to see, friends to meet. With Lorna long buried and consoling friends not coming around so much, I just had work. The main lights were off to make the lab dark and give a better look at Shangri-La. The clock on my computer screen said it was nearly nine. I put down my pen and rubbed my eyes. Maybe I should go home. Problem was, whenever I went to bed I faced the certainty of long hours awake. It felt better to keep working until I fell asleep. I put my arms on the desk and lay my head on them, my forehead pressed against my shirt sleeve. I squeezed my eyes closed. I could fall asleep right here. Maybe that was the answer. Just stay at my desk until I slept and then wake up and carry on. I pushed my chair back from the desk and lifted my head. For some reason I kept my eyes closed as I turned my head. The lab was so familiar that I had a mental image behind my eyelids of its layout and contents. I could have got up and walked around without opening my eyes. Lorna stood by the door. She looked like she was waiting for me to leave with her. I opened my eyes and the doorway was empty. I drove home through light rain that blew like soot between buildings. I couldn't sleep so I sat by the garden window. We had two armchairs that faced each other. It was where Lorna and I sat in the evenings sharing a bottle of wine. Lorna would read me bits from the paper or a book she was reading. I would tell her things about the moons of Saturn that she never found as interesting as I did. Alone now, I leaned my head back, closing my eyes. Lorna was in the chair opposite me. I wanted to reach forward and touch her hand, but if I gave in to that impulse, what did it say about my grip on reality? I remained still and enjoyed the sight of her. She smiled and bowed her head over a book in her lap. I fell asleep, and when I woke, it was three in the morning, and I was cold. Lorna was gone. Tack, main beam! The chunk of ice that had pinned me took up half the width of the passage. Beyond it, the rocky walls disappeared into shadow. I took a couple of careful steps forward and directed the beam beyond the boulder. Shit! The passage was about four feet wide and six high. It was blocked almost to the roof by a wall of fallen ice and rock. 
leaving a strip of shadow at the top, perhaps six inches wide. Someone hasn't been shoveling the snow off of their drive. It may not be as bad as it looks, dude. I'm struggling to see how it could be worse. The obstruction doesn't end far, and the fall cut away some of the roof. I think you can get over it. Did I ever tell you I love your optimism? It gets better. I'm picking up the crawler carrier signal. Why didn't you say? Full transmitter power. Willis, are you getting this? Willis, it's Darlow. I just need to clear some rubble. I'm on my way out. At high power, the sound of silence was painfully loud in my headset. I bet Willis was grateful now she let me be the one to invent Titan potholing. At first, I thought she'd pull rank when I said it should be me. The reason we were on Titan was because Pointy Head's back home had convinced themselves it was the likeliest place in the solar system to find some kind of life. Thick atmosphere and a temperature range that meant methane could mimic water on Earth and appear as liquid, solid and gas, even offering up hydrocarbon-based weather. After the disappointment of finding the methane sea of Laguerre was lifeless, one genius suggested we should look underground. More stable temperatures, signs of liquid beneath the surface. I convinced myself that I wanted to be the one who got his name on the history books by emerging from the frozen cave with a handful of hydrocarbon moss. Tack, have you anything other than the carrier signal? Not yet, dude. I'll stay on it while you're digging. I clambered on all fours up the sloping mound of ice and rock. I reached one arm into the narrow gap under the cave roof and scraped about a cubic foot of rubble back towards me. It was mostly small pieces, and I let them spill down the slope and fall onto the cave floor. You might be right, Tack. It seems to be moving easily. Sweet. I began to encounter larger pieces of rubble, but Titan's weak gravity allowed me to slide them back and past me. Within a few minutes, I'd widened the gap to about 18 inches. I paused for a brief rest. Willis, do you read? It's Darlow. Don't drive away without me, OK? Static again. Tack, how are we doing for power? 59%. Dim the beam a bit more and dial down the radio. I'll try Willis again when... I can hear you. Wait, Tack, full power. Willis, are you reading me? No answer. Tack, did you get a fix on that? How how far... Fix on what, dude? She just said... Oh, never mind. Just save the power like I told you. I returned to my snow clearance. I never thought I'd long for a shovel in my hands. The larger chunks lower down were pressed together more tightly and I needed to hammer at them with my forearm to shift them. But they moved, and the space beneath the roof was soon wider than my suit helmet. I leaned forward and directed the light through the newly enlarged gap. I saw the narrow walls I'd passed before the roof fell on me. It had taken me about an hour to get this far in. With luck, which mainly meant no more blockages, I could get out quicker than that. I scrambled forward and eased myself on my stomach across the top of the pile I'd partly cleared and half slid, half lowered my way down the other side. I directed the light upwards. Maybe the rockfall had exposed a colony of titan orchids that I could take home, or better still, a shortcut back to Willis and the crawler. The beam found nothing but bands of dark rocks and seams of ice. A tap on my visor made me flinch, and a smear of blue liquid drew a line down the toughened plastic. I wiped it away with a glove, and examined my hand. The blue liquid bubbled gently on my fingers, giving off strands of dark steam. There were seams of frozen ozone in the rock and ice, and it looked like they were melting. Maybe the heat of my passing weakened the cave walls. That wasn't a nice thought. (laughs) Time to get moving. It's funny how easily you get used to things. It became my ritual to come home from the lab, throw my bag and coat on a chair, and pour a whiskey. After I drank it, 
I would close my eyes and shuffle slowly from room to room, arms outstretched to keep myself from bumping into any walls. Sometimes Lorna would be in the chair by the window. She would look up when I came into the room and smile. Other times she was in the kitchen. I'd watch her through my closed eyes and wonder what she'd cook me if she could. I got so used to expecting her to be there when I came home. The times when I closed my eyes, but I couldn't see her, what a disappointment. Once I had a particularly tough day. I was exhausted after months of 15 hour days and it was the night before they announced the mission crew. I was certain I hadn't made the cut. I could see it in the eyes of everyone I spoke to, hear it in the voice of my boss on the phone. I just knew it had all been wasted. A decade of work and arse-kissing. Grinding on after Lorna's death. All wasted. I got home after midnight and walked my ritual walk through every room with my eyes shut and palms extended. Lorna wasn't there. Not in the armchair. Not in the kitchen. Nowhere. I was properly alone. I was shocked how sad this made me feel. Like she had died again. My house was as empty with my eyes closed as it was when they were open. It was only when I went to bed that I found her. I turned out my bedside light and closed my eyes. She sat cross-legged on the carpet beside the bed, looking straight at me from a couple of feet away. Her face was troubled, darkened by a frown. It was as if she knew what I needed, this night of all nights. Someone to watch me when I slept. I'll be okay, I said. Who wants to go to Titan anyway? Next morning they posted the crew names. Mine was among them. Fifty yards up the tunnel I hit another blockage. This was smaller and it only took me ten minutes to clear space and scramble over, but every obstacle cost me time and energy. I couldn't afford many more. Tack, you can reduce the eaters another notch. This is warm work. You don't want to go too low, amigo. I can afford a bit more. If I'm melting the ozone around me, I must be putting out heat I don't need. That'll be the damaged veins. Thanks for reminding me. The passage had grown wider, and I was able to move faster. I stepped up my pace to kind of half-jog, half-shuffle, with my arms out to my sides to ward off the cave wall if I slipped. Anything from Willis? Still just the catter signal. It's no further away. So there's one bit of good news. She's not given up and driven away yet. Maybe I won't die after all. Want me to calculate your chances, buddy? No, keep it a surprise. Wait a minute. A slight movement on the edge of my vision. I stopped and swung my helmet beam over the ice walls. At first I saw nothing but what I had seen everywhere else. Grey ice streaked through with braids of ammonia and ozone, studded with chunks of iron or silicon or smaller round lumps of what I first assumed was ice. The pieces of ice were moving. There were about a dozen of them. They looked like pale, almost translucent pebbles, ranging from two to six inches across. Wherever the beam fell most brightly, the ice pebbles slid gently to the side, easing away from the light like sunbathers edging into the shade. I leaned closer, and I could see where the pebbles met the wall. They sprouted short filaments, like the bristles on a scrubbing brush. These moved in a slow rhythm, pulling the pebble along the wall. Tack! Beam off for ten seconds. In the sudden darkness, I was conscious of Lorna, watching me from ten yards further up the tunnel. For once, I was more focused on something else. The light came back on. Wow! Are you getting this? Recording, dude. 
the light revealed that the group of pebbles had moved. Five were arranged in a small circle, with the largest one in the centre, as if it were the hub of a bicycle wheel. As soon as the light returned, they moved again, sliding apart towards the edge of the circle of light cast by my beam. Well, mission accomplished. Do you think I should take one with me? Or ask them to take me to their leader? You need to keep moving. A sample would be good. I'm going to leave them there. I'm going to leave them here. Your video will have to do. With the low gravity, I assume they're pretty fragile. I can't carry one and dig my way past any more rockfalls. I was about to move on when I felt a soft impact on my left shoulder, followed by a staccato rattle on the top of my helmet as small pieces of debris struck me from above. Acting on instinct, I flung myself forward along the tunnel. I felt a rush of air pass me, displaced by something large coming to ground in the place where I'd been standing moments before. They make these spacesuits tough, which is lucky, because my leap slid me at least 15 yards along the cave floor. Atmospheric pressure on Titan is greater than Earth's, so the suits aren't pressurised, and a breach would not be explosive in the way it would be in orbit. But I didn't fancy any holes in the suit in an atmosphere cold enough to freeze methane. Behind me, a chunk of rock and ice had fallen from the roof of the cave. It was about the size and shape of a children's paddling pool. Some pieces of ice had broken off and landed near me. I picked one up. It was jagged around the edges except for one side, which was curved. Along the curve were tiny indents, as if someone had scraped at it with a small metal blade, causing the ice to melt and refreeze. I leaned back and directed my torch at the ceiling. Holy shit! A circular hole in the cave roof marked the place where the fall had come from, exactly above where I'd been standing. Around the edge of the hole were more of the pebble creatures, at least a hundred of them. They were on the move, flowing like an incoming tide around the edges of the new hole in the ceiling and sliding in a raggedy convoy along the roof towards me. Maybe the natives aren't friendly. About a dozen of the creatures had already formed up in an arc and were squirming against the roof. They moved slowly from side to side, as if washed by invisible waves. Beneath one or two I could see the tiny threads in rapid motion. As I watched, more pebbles reached them and fanned out to extend the arc, moving it closer to a full circle. Tack, what do you think they're doing? Digging. Do you think they made that roof fall? Maybe it's something you said. I backed away, keeping the beam on the roof. As I moved back, the half-circle broke and followed. I turned away and began to run. I told no one about seeing Lorna. Who needed to know? The mind does strange things, and if this was my way of coping with grief, where was the arm? With my eyes open, I was all business. No one better at my job. That's why I got the gig alongside Willis to land on Titan, leaving Smith and Anwar in orbit, and twenty other hopefuls back on Earth. What I saw with my eyes closed, that was my business. I thought it was over by the time we blasted off. I closed my eyes during the final countdown, strapped into my berth on top of the 300 feet of high explosive that powered the launch. I thought I might see Lorna in the cabin next to me, but she didn't appear. Nor did I see her in the long journey out past Mars and Jupiter. I missed her, but maybe her work was done. I came to a junction where the passage split in two. Both ways looked the same, both sloped gently upwards. I didn't remember this branch when I came in. Maybe my little titan friends were digging new tunnels. Go right. Willis, are you tracking me? How far are you? Keep going. I took the right fork, 
there were no more cave-ins, but I had lost track of how long it had taken me so far, and how much further there was to go. My breath was loud inside the helmet, with an unpleasant sobbing sound to it. I willed myself to slow down, but my feet wouldn't obey. I felt if I stopped even for a moment, I would be buried under a frozen avalanche, unleashed by little pebbly millipedes. Tack, how are we doing on systems and power? Batteries down to 40, oxygen 50, everything else fine. Lucky I'm nearly there. Oh, shit! The tunnel bent sharply to the left. As my helmet beam lit up what lay ahead of me, I stopped, fighting the urge to turn and run back into the depths. The walls and roof of the passage were coated in a thick swarm of the living pebbles. Some were larger than the others I'd seen, as wide as six inches across. Where the light fell on them, they became agitated, rippling down the icy walls and piling up on the tunnel floor. Tack, I don't know if I can get through. Close your eyes. You've got to be kidding. The light. Tack, cut the light. The brutal darkness made my breath stick to my chest. My imagination conjured a silent swarm, crawling towards me, preparing to climb my legs. Beam on. The titans had relaxed and edged away from my path while the light was off. With the returning brightness, they changed direction and resumed their movement to block my path, like cells of fat clogging an artery. I don't know if I can do this. Do what, dude? I'm not talking to you. Cut the light again. In the renewed darkness, Lorna was in front of me, about ten yards away, just beyond the point where the titans had massed. She was turned three quarters away from me, looking back over her shoulder. She gestured towards me with one hand. I buried her in that dress because she wore it when we were happiest together. She wore it for the first time on a hot day when we spent the afternoon at a friend's garden party. We walked home through the sudden summer storm which soaked us in seconds and made the road fizz with the spray from a million fat raindrops. The wet dress clung to her body and she giggled as she whispered in my ear. I'm not wearing any underwear. I haven't all afternoon. Now you tell me. We're nearly home. You can do something about it. Maybe I should get you out of those wet clothes. Good start. She got pregnant that day. We were sure of it. Keep walking. Come to me. Lorna held out her hand and took a step away. I clenched my eyes shut tight, the better to keep her in view, and walked towards her. I could imagine I was approaching a wall of the pebble creatures, their sharp, brush-like legs scrabbling eager for my visor. Something under my boot gave way with a soft crack. Sorry. Another liquid crack, then several more. It felt like the ground was covered with egg boxes. Something brushed my hand, then fell away. Lorna was pulling further away, enticing me on with her outstretched arm. Three, four more steps, and the repellent cracking beneath my feet ceased. I walked on a dozen more paces before stopping, all my focus on the receding figure of Lorna ahead of me in the tunnel. I had a powerful urge to turn back and use the beam to see what I'd left behind, but I was now too afraid to use the light. Willis, can you still track me? How far have I got? Keep going. I kept my eyes closed. Lorna was fifteen yards away, hands on her hips. I resumed my careful, shuffling walk. I don't know how long I continued like that, but it felt like hours. 
The only sound was the deafening wheeze of my own breath in my helmet. The only thing I saw was the impossible vision of my dead wife leading me through the dark. A couple of times I slipped. The horror of falling over into a nest of multi-legged ice eggs almost forced me to open my eyes. But I managed to stay upright and keep my focus on Lorna, who remained a few paces ahead, leading me up the gently sloping tunnel. Wait, I need to rest. I reached out an arm, intending to lean against the tunnel wall for support. My glove met only empty space, making me stumble slightly and open my eyes. Something dark moved at my feet, and it took me a few seconds to work out it was my shadow. Beyond it was the cave opening I had entered hours before. I turned and saw the pale bulk of Saturn hanging low in the sky. The sky was its usual dirty mustard colour, and a dark smudge of clouds churned above the horizon, suggesting a storm brewing. Tack, weather check. Partly cloudy, with a chance of methane snow. Better find my ride. Lights on now. No sense tripping over when I'm so close. I resumed walking, moving away from the cave towards the place where we parked the crawler. Willis, I'm out. Are you hearing me? I moved beyond a low spur of rock and saw the back of the crawler, a row of wheels as tall as me, draped on a thick chain of caterpillar bed, a bank of solar panels on the back of the squat storage bay. I let out a long breath that I hadn't known I was holding. Willis, I can see you. The navigation light on the rear of the crawler was dark, which was odd. Maybe Willis cut it to save power while she waited. Five more paces, and the front of the crawler came into view. Or rather, it didn't. From the midsection forward, the crawler was embedded in a wall of rock. Where the cabin should be was a boulder of ice, big as a truck. The crawler was designed for heat and mobility. It wasn't a tank, and the rockfall had squashed the front section flat. Tack, I thought you had the crawler's signal. Just the carrier, dude. I saw what he meant. The beacon was on the back. It would keep on transmitting even when the other systems were damaged. Even when there was no one on board to transmit anything. Poor Willis. Okay, Tack. Four miles back to the base. Let's say two hours if I move quickly and don't get lost. How are we for supplies? Maybe an hour of oxygen, possibly a bit more on batteries. The crawler's storage bay was accessed through a panel above the large back wheel. The contents were intact. Two spare suits attached to metal brackets, sealed boxes of emergency packs, metal canisters of water, and six oxygen tanks. Tack! Undock oxygen tank too. I put both hands behind my back, and the metal cylinder dropped into them with a soft hiss of escaping air. I dropped the used tank to the icy ground. Storm coming, dude. This day just gets better. The distant plot of cloud had doubled in size. Thin streams of dust, or possibly snow, snaked around my ankles, fleeing the approaching cloud. I clicked the fresh tank into place after a couple of false starts, all those months of repetitive training drills. I jumped down from the caterpillar tread. That's the oxygen sorted, I said. Cool, the suit said. We just need to make the power last twice as long and everything's fine. I faced the storm, which, unfortunately, was in precisely the direction I needed to go to Lega. I couldn't feel the wind through my suit, but small flakes of methane snow had begun to rattle against the helmet visor. The onrushing clouds were now almost overhead, obscuring all of Saturn except the highest arc of the outermost ring. 
My shadow had gone, swallowed by the swelling dark. I closed my eyes. She stood in front of me and a little to the side, while Titan's freezing wind beat against my suit. Lorna's dress moved slowly in the warm wind of a day that was years in the past and 800 million miles away. I hate to say it, dude, but things don't look good. It's fine, I said. I'll make it. This way. She took a step away from me, stopped and raised her arm. Tack, cut the heater to 10% and shut everything else down. Whoa, you sure? Lights comes the lot. How much battery does that give me? Maybe 90 minutes, but what about navigation? I don't need it. I can find the way. Snow swirled around Lona and thrashed against my helmet. I was tempted to open my eyes, but I feared she might disappear again. You get five minutes more battery if you shut me down, dude. Do it, Tack, I said. And thanks, buddy. A soft click in my ears signalled the shutdown. I was adrift in darkness, silent, except for the persistent chatter of ice crystals against my helmet. Lorna still stood, with her arm extended, waiting for me to walk with her into the methane blizzard. I stepped forward, eyes still clamped shut. Are you all right? I'm fine. Hold my hand. This time, at last, I did. There you go. Big thank you to Chris. Chris, man, if it isn't his own's picking it up, man, what can we say? It's just, yes, they know that. They know stuff. It's great. Thank you so much. And Gareth, it's lovely to have you back on. Do you mean we, we go back a while, eh? I've badgered you for free stuff in the past so many times. <laughs> Gareth, I hope you're well and everything's going fine for you, lad. So, Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news, Jim, sir. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings and femto-regalian stripulations, my ludicrously unmeretricious listeners. And welcome to this April 2018 Science News Update. I'm your host for this lushly enchanting science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Well, I haven't found any idiot scientists of the month again this month, 
Well, several of you listeners have asked me the same question in the last couple of months, which is related to idiot scientists, and the question is why. Why do these men and women go the sloppy route? What is leading to all these papers with bad science, even sometimes from scholars with the best of intentions? Well, I have a couple of answers. I suspect some of those factors may be true for anybody's career and not just for scientists. First, well, as academics, there's a constant pressure from the top to publish and get grants for those who do not have tenure or have not yet been fully promoted. Worse, if you're a postdoc and want a real tenure-track job at all, research funds are getting tighter than ever and good positions are getting hard to come by. To get grants and jobs, scientists need to publish, preferably in big-name journals. That pressure may lead researchers to publish many low-quality studies instead of aiming for a smaller number of well-done studies. To convince administrators and grant reviewers of the worthiness of their work, scientists have to be cheerleaders for their own research. They may not be as critical of their own results as they would be, or should be, of somebody else's. And even with the best of us, that is very hard sometimes. Second, getting published isn't enough anymore. Strange as that may sound. When I talk with my provost, he's certainly interested that I published a bunch of papers, but he wants to know where those papers were published as well. He will actually look up the quality of the various journals. You see, for scientists, Publishing in a top journal like Nature or Science or Cell with high citation rates or impact factors, as they're called, it's kind of like winning a medal. Universities and funding agencies award jobs and money disproportionately to researchers who publish in those journals. And many researchers say that the science in those journals isn't really much better than studies published anywhere else. It's just splashier and tends not to reflect the messy reality of the real world. Mania, like my provosts, linked up to publishing in high-impact journals may encourage researchers to do just about anything to publish there, sacrificing the quality of their science as a result, and potentially even making stuff up. Third, well, crappy papers can come from experiments that get contaminated. It's possible that cells and animals that others have used or purchased may not be as advertised in the actual journals. In hundreds of instances since the 1960s, researchers misidentified cells they were working with. It happens. Heck, a report from about a year ago suggested that bacterial DNA in lab reagents can interfere with those microbiome studies that I always keep telling you about. Fourth, remember that most biologists are not mathematicians especially the MDs, who did not exactly take a lot of statistical courses. They may make math errors by mistake. Worse, some purposely play with stats by massaging data to achieve particular statistical criteria. Small sample sizes, improper blind studies can lead to statistical errors. Data-heavy studies require multiple convoluted steps to analyze with lots of opportunity for errors, or just introducing slight changes in your favor. Researchers can often find patterns and mounds of data that have absolutely no scientific meaning, but they give them meaning anyway. 
sometimes bad papers come about because the scientists simply left out data or purposely used the wrong reagents or antibodies or animals. They do this on purpose so nobody else can replicate their data. Certainly, you don't want competition, after all. Another reason why the data in papers is wrong sometimes and not reproducible can come down directly to the science itself. Biology is messy. All those variables can be hard to reproduce. If you're a really sucky scientist and don't care, then you may not even report every factor correctly or completely, or even realize that they were there. Sometimes you don't even see data that has been rechecked or experiments that have been reperformed because journals want new findings. They don't want to see the same analyses repeated again. That gives researchers not much incentive to check previously published work or to try to publish those findings if they do. False findings go unchallenged, and negative results, ones that show no evidence to support the scientist's hypothesis, those are rarely published. Some people fear that scientists may leave out important, correct results that don't fit a given hypothesis and publish only experiments that do. So all these reasons lead to lousy papers and stuff we cannot always trust in journals, and even the good ones sometimes. I don't think that the scientists involved ever set out to be idiots, but very often it just comes out that way. Okay, first actual story of the night. Let's go up into space for this one. As you probably already know, there's a massive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Well, it turns out that alpha black hole is not quite by itself. Dr. Charles Haley of Columbia University and his colleagues reported in the journal Nature April 4th that there are additional black holes slowly spiraling inward toward the center of the galaxy. The center of the Milky Way may actually be abuzz with black holes, if you want to put it that way. For the first time, a dozen small black holes have been spotted within the inner region of the galaxy in an area spanning just a few light years. And there could be thousands more. Isolated black holes don't emit any light, but black holes stealing material from orbiting stars will heat that material until it emits X-rays. In 12 years of X-ray telescopic work, Haley and his colleagues have found 12 objects emitting the right X-ray energy to be black holes with stellar companions. Based on theoretical predictions of how many black holes are paired with stars, that could be up to 20,000 invisible solo black holes just in that small part of the galaxy. The discovery follows decades of astronomers searching for small black holes of the galactic center, where that supermassive black hole lives. Theory predicted that the galaxy should contain millions or even a hundred million black holes as well overall, with a glut of black holes piled up near the center. But none had been found, well, up until now. Healy says, quote, It was always kind of a mystery. If there's so many that are supposed to be jammed into that central parsec of about 3.26 light-years, why haven't we seen any evidence? Unquote. It's unclear how the black holes got to the galaxy's center. Haley suggests gravity could have tugged them toward that supermassive alpha black hole that's present there. Or, alternatively, he suggests that black holes could be born in a disk around that supermassive alpha black hole. 
Haley, to assure us that his group did not make a mistake, ruled out other objects emitting X-rays like neutron stars and white dwarves, but he acknowledged that up to half of the sources they found could be quote-unquote fast-spinning stellar corpses called millisecond pulsars rather than black holes. Okay, for the next story, let's stay in space. Well, sort of in space. So on March 15th, NASA released its preliminary findings on its astronaut twin study. This was reported by Monica Edwards and Lori Abadi of NASA Human Research Strategic Communications. So you may remember the story. One of the twins stayed on Earth while the other stayed at the International Space Station for months. And the question was, have they physically or genetically diverged from each other? Well, it turns out that Mark and Scott Kelly are still identical twins. Scott's DNA spent months in space along with him, and it didn't fundamentally change. What researchers did observe are changes in gene expression, which is how your body reacts to your environment. This is likely within the range of humans under stress on Earth, like mountain climbers or scuba divers. The change related to only 7% of the gene expression that altered during spaceflight that had not returned to pre-flight after six months on Earth. This change of gene expression seemed to be very minimal. We are now at the beginning of our understanding of how spaceflight affects the molecular level of the human body. NASA and the other researchers collaborating on these studies expect to announce more comprehensive results on the twin studies this summer. NASA described the research as a, quote, perfect nature versus nurture study, unquote, one that could provide important insights into the effects of long-term spaceflight on the human body. By measuring the large numbers of the brothers' metabolites and cytokines and proteins, the researchers are able to learn that spaceflight is associated with oxygen deprivation stress, increased inflammation, and dramatic nutrient shifts that do affect gene expression. Although most of the biological changes Kelly experienced in space disappeared in hours or even days after his return to Earth, NASA said some of those alterations appeared to have persisted and have still persisted. While 93% of his genetic expression has returned to quote-unquote normal, whatever normal is, several hundred space genes, as they are being called now, have changed activity level, the data suggests. NASA said this could indicate longer-term changes in genetic expression caused by the stresses of spaceflight, and they may even be permanent. Increasing mission duration from the typical six months on the International Space Station to one year resulted in no significant decreases in Scott's cognitive performance while in flight, and relative to his twin brother Mark on the ground, However, a more pronounced decrease in speed and accuracy was reported post-flight, possibly due to re-exposure and adjustment to Earth's gravity, and of course the busy schedule that uh, enveloped Scott after his mission with hundreds of scientists looking at him. All right, next story. Splenda sucks. Okay, so I'm being kind of harsh, because Splenda has made me sick for years if I accidentally ingest it. I was really annoyed as hell when the idiots at Pepsi decided that Diet Pepsi should have Splenda instead of NutraSweet. And the problem is, when I walk into a restaurant and ask for a Diet Coke, 
and the waiter or waitress decides not to tell me that they only have Diet Pepsi, and I get mysterious stomach cramps a couple of hours later. Yes, I did literally mean sucralose makes me physically ill. By the way, I think that Pepsi has finally decided to change back. Too many people have complained about uh, the, the alteration in their formula. Anyway, so what news is there about sucralose, nay splenda? Well, apparently I'm not the only one who gets sick from that toxic crap. According to Dr. Alex Rodriguez-Palacios of the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, my doctoral alma mater, by the way, he reported in the journal Inflammatory Bowel Disease that the artificial sweetener sucralose, Splenda, worsened gut inflammation in mice with a Crohn's-like disease. Rodrigo Palacios says, quote, Our findings suggest that patients with Crohn's disease should think carefully about consuming Splenda or similar products containing sucralose and maltodextrin. Several studies have examined the ingredients found in this widely available product separately. Here we use Splenda as a means to test the combined effect of the commercial ingredients and used one of the best animal models of ileal Crohn's disease, unquote. Half of my study belonged to a genetic line that suffers a form of Crohn's disease and were more affected than the remaining half of the mice, which belonged to a healthy mouse line. Splenda produced an intestinal overgrowth of E. coli and increased bacterial penetration into the gut wall, but only in Crohn's disease-like mice. Moreover, the research team also found the Splenda ingestion resulted in increased myeloperoxidase activity in the intestines of mice with bowel disease, but not in healthy mice. Myeloperoxidase is an enzyme in the white blood cells that is effective in killing various microorganisms. The point is kind of that the increased presence of E. coli intensified the levels of this enzyme activity in the bowel as the body sought to fight off the invader. The findings suggest that the consumption of Splenda may increase myeloperoxidase production only in people with a pro-inflammatory disposition, like Crohn's disease or some other forms of inflammatory bowel disease. As part of this process, inflammation and its attended consequences could exacerbate the symptoms of Crohn's disease. Obviously, somebody with Crohn's would want to know this. Rodriguez Palacios finished by saying, quote, This study demonstrates that the sweetener induces changes in gut bacteria and gut wall immune cell reactivity, which could result in inflammation or disease flare-ups in susceptible people, unquote. I wonder how many people besides me who do not have Crohn's disease are sickened by Splenda. Just curious. I will never be a big supporter of that uh, stuff. Next story. Scientists at the University of Basel in Switzerland have created artificial organelles that can function as tiny intracellular implants in living organisms. If you're unfamiliar with the term organelle, it simply refers to a subcellular structure, usually with a membrane around it, that does a particular job inside of a cell. It's the equivalent of an organ in an entire animal, like a heart or something like that. But in the case of uh, in the case of a cell, it's doing 
uh, much more particular jobs uh, like making energy or breaking down uh, wastes or nutrient products or recycling things. There's lots of organelles, but this is the first time anybody has produced them artificially. So when tested in zebrafish embryos, these membrane-bound uh, artificial organelles were carrying an enzyme called horseradish peroxidase, and they were taken up readily by the cells in embryos, and um, the, the encapsulated enzymes were activated in response to a whole series of intracellular uh, chemical changes. Dr. Cornelia Pavilin's team claims that their achievement could pave the way for the development of new forms of personalized therapy. The paper came out last month in the journal Nature Communications and is entitled, quote, Biomimetic Artificial Organelles with In Vitro and In Vivo Activity Triggered by Reduction in Microenvironment, unquote. Pavilon says, quote, We've now been able to integrate these controllable artificial organelles into the cells of a living organism for the first time, unquote. Artificial organelles are composed of nanospheres that compartmentalize active compounds like enzymes and proteins or catalysts, and they can function in the intracellular environment. They could feasibly be used to change cellular conditions and reactions, or to detoxify harmful compounds, or to provide signals for other cellular functions. Natural organelles have membranes, as I mentioned earlier, to retain compartmentalization, to, to keep them separate from the rest of the, the cell and to confine enzymatic reaction spaces. That compartmentalization has to be a key feature of artificial organelles, the authors point out. Another essential factor for fine-tuning artificial organelle functionality is the triggered response to environmental cues, uh, like, again, changes in the in the chemical state of the cell, like pH and things like that. Nanoscopic chemicals called polymerosomes represent the ideal candidates for creating these artificial organelles, the paper says. These self-organizing hollow spheres have a membrane that can act as a boundary layer for an inner cavity and also give the spheres greater mechanical stability than exhibited by uh, artificial organelles that are based on other structures like liposomes, which are uh, basically what uh, actual uh, organelles are made out of, membranes. To generate prototype controllable artificial organelles, the team constructed these polymerosomes and encapsulated that horseradish peroxidase enzyme I mentioned earlier. And it's only activated when specific molecules penetrate through the outer membrane. The horseradish peroxidase was chosen as a model enzyme because peroxidases play a serious role in the, uh, the control of uh, things like pH, homeostasis in cells. Control of enzyme activity was achieved by incorporating into the polymerosome membrane genetically modified pore uh, enzymes, channels, that act as responsive gates to changes in pH. Pavilion says, our artificial organelles preserved their architecture and were activated after reaching the cellular microenvironment. More exciting, they are functional in a vertebrate zebrafish model. And that proves that the concept of artificial organelles as cellular implants is feasible in vivo.
unquote. Uh, next story, morning sickness. For you pregnant ladies out there, this may come as a comfort or an annoyance. The scientists have finally figured out what causes extreme morning sickness in some women, but not in others. I guess that morning sickness is not an uncommon condition with pregnancy of most women. However, in a small percentage of women, about 2% according to the paper, there is an extreme form of morning sickness called hyperemesis gravidarum, HG for short. HG can be so bad that it can put both the mother and the fetus at grave risk. And now in a new study led by investigators at UCLA, they've identified two genes associated with HG whose cause has not been determined in previous studies. Findings from the new study, published earlier this month in Nature Communications, in an article entitled, quote, Placenta and Appetite Genes, GDF15 and IGFBP7, are associated with hyperemesis gravidarum, unquote. Quite a title there. The two genes identified are both involved in the development of the placenta and play important roles in early pregnancy and appetite regulation. Head of the study, Dr. Marlena Fejzo of the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA says, quote, It has long been assumed that the pregnancy hormones, human chorionic gonadotropin, or estrogen, were the likely culprits of extreme nausea and vomiting. But our study found no evidence to support that at all. The two genes we identified, coincidentally, are likely to cause cachexia, which is weight loss and muscle wasting, that leads to death in about 20% of cancer patients and has similar symptoms in HG, unquote. Current medications to treat the condition are largely ineffective and can lead to serious health consequences for both the mother and the baby. The condition is the second leading cause of hospitalization during pregnancy. Women often require intravenous fluids and in the most severe cases, feeding tubes. Previous research has shown that Severe nausea and vomiting during pregnancy often runs in families, suggesting that genetics does play a role. For the study, the team compared the variation in DNA from pregnant women with no nausea and vomiting to those with HG to see what the differences were between the two groups. DNA variation around the genes GDF15 and IGFBP7 were associated with HG. The findings were then confirmed in an independent study of women who had HG. In a separate follow-up study, Fejzo then showed evidence that the proteins from the two genes are abnormally high in women with HG. The next step is to determine whether GDF15 and IGFBP7 protein levels can be altered safely in pregnancy to minimize nausea and vomiting. These findings suggest a new avenue of research into a condition for which treatments have progressed very little in the last 70 years. Fejso concludes with, quote, It is my hope that one day a medication that affects this pathway will be used successfully to treat and possibly cure HG, unquote. Here's another health story that concerns salt in our gut biome. Yes, it's another bacteria in our digestive tract story. Wahoo, I know. But let's just get to it. A study published this month in Nature shows that a diet high in salt can actually alter 
the gut biomes of mice by depleting it of good bacteria, uh, specifically uh, bacteria called Lactobacillus murinus. The study also shows that treating mice with L. murinus helps to reduce symptoms of autoimmune conditions by altering the immune response. Team leader Nicola Wilk of the Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine says, quote, Our lab has previously studied the effect of high-salt environment on T-cells of the immune system. However, we have never studied the effect of salt on the microbiome in relation to the immune system, unquote. Wilk fed mice with a high salt or a normal salt diet and then studied their gut microbial communities. Mice that consumed a high salt diet had low amounts of certain bacterial species, including L. murinus, compared to mice eating a normal diet. In culture, salt also inhibited the lactobacillus growth. Mice fed a high salt diet also showed an increase in the number of Th17 cells in the blood. Uh, those cells play a role in hypertension. The number of Th17 cells decreased when the mice consumed lactobacillus. The team wondered if lactobacillus might help treat salt-induced hypertension. So they treated mice on a high-salt diet that had developed high blood pressure with L. murinus. Blood pressure declined during the course of that treatment as a result of decreased production of those Th17 cells. To analyze the role of salt on the human gut microbiome, Wilk did a pilot study on humans. She recruited healthy volunteers who agreed to consume high-salt diet and salt tablets for 14 days. As expected, this caused an increase in blood pressure, an increase in the Th17 cells, and an accompanied loss of certain lactobacillus species of the volunteers. Wilk finishes with, Quote, we want to extend the human studies further. We would like to study the immune effects of high salt on a large cohort to see if probiotic treatment can protect against hypertension and immune disorders, unquote. Cool. Eat more salt, get high blood pressure, eat yogurt to fix the problem. Sure, I'm sure it's not as simple as that. As usual, it'll be much more complicated. Okay, the last story of the night concerns the mantis shrimp. I know, not exactly exciting, but just listen. These little buggers are more interesting than you'd think. Dr. Lessa K. Grunenfeld from the University of California, Riverside, headed up the study, which looked at what makes these little guys so incredibly tough. Her work was published in the journal Advanced Materials last month and is entitled, quote, Ecologically Driven Ultrastructural and Hydrodynamic Designs in Stomatopod Cuticles, unquote. Okay, so the title isn't that exciting. But let me tell you, as ambush predators, mantis shrimp excel at lying in wait for their prey before striking from the shadows with specialized feeding appendages. But the form and function of those appendages has divided the mantis shrimp species into two evolutionarily distinct groups. First, there are the spearers, and the spearers use sharp harpoon-like appendages to slash and stab at their soft-bodied prey. And then there are the smashers, 
and the Smashers use blunt, hammer-like appendages to break into hard-shelled crustaceans. These bulbous, smashing appendages, known as dactyl clubs, are capable of accelerating at 100,000 meters per second. That, by the way, is similar to a small-caliber gun bullet. And they can apply crippling forces equal to about 2,500 times the actual body weight of the mantis shrimp. Wielding such powerful weapons makes the mantis shrimp a formidable predator. But how can they apply those devastating blows and remain undamaged after constant use? Grunenfeld, built on previous work investigating the structural regions of those feeding appendages, and focused on examining the structure and evolutionary history of the previously unexamined area called the striated region. Using both optical and electron microscopy, the team carefully examined and compared cross-sections taken from the appendages of the smashing peacock mantis shrimp and the spearing zebra mantis shrimp in order to learn more about the role of the region. They found that the striated region of the smasher is composed largely of tightly packed sheets of mineralized chitin compared with the organic components of the surrounding regions. They also found that this region of toughened chitin wraps all around the club, leading the authors to compare its role with that of the hand wrap used on boxers, condensing the fist into a tight ball and preventing catastrophic injury upon impact. This region was also found to contain a network of pore channels that allow for ion transport and give the region its striated appearance. As far as the spearers were concerned, they found that the tightly packed mineralized chitin was all along the length of the spear so that it was designed to aid in impact as it pushed into prey. With the aim of applying this knowledge to humanity's benefit, Grunenfelder describes how the microstructures of these weaponized feeding appendages could be used to influence the biomimetic design of new materials. She highlights her particular interest in aerospace and sports industries with the goal of creating more durable aerofoils for aircraft, as well as bicycle helmets and golf clubs that maximize speed and strength without sacrificing structural safety. I guess in these turbulent Trumpulent times, it's refreshing to see that scientists are hoping to turn one of nature's deadliest, most durable swords into plowshares. That's all for me for now. As always, take care. Don't use Splenda if you have any signs of bowel disease. Watch that salt intake. Keep away from mantis shrimp. They're dangerous. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time. This is Jim Campanella. And there you go, James. What can I say? What can I say, young man? Thank you very much indeed. So that is show 534 put in the bag. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you can support it. Do you know what I mean? Like you say, it's, it's a bit of fun kind of trying to get up to 500. It's not about, you know, the money. It's the kind of the goal there now. You know, it's a couple of dollars. You know, if everyone did that couple of dollar thing, it's like rock solid. It doesn't matter if one person drops out, two people, ten people. 
if it's just that many doing these little figures, it's just fantastic. And I, honestly, I'll butcher that name. Doesn't matter what name you've got, I'll butcher it. So get it butchered on the show. That would be fantastic. $2, man. Come on. <laughs> I see that because come on, big lad. That's me when, when I'm, that's what the wife says to us when I'm you know like lifting so oh we're in DIY hell at the minute. Oh man. We um I'll give you a little this is five minutes. I'm sitting here, I'm doing nothing. We got this fancy carpet for the stairs and it cost us a fucking fortune. And within weeks it was just wrecked. Son came down with flu, threw up all over it. It was a wool carpet. It's just stained like something not right. Couldn't get the stains out straight away. And my wife was up when my son was kind of thrown up. Are you having your breakfast now? It was going everywhere. Every... <laughs> but this bloody carpet, and it was just like oh, the bane of our. So we put a claim in. We were lucky enough to get it, you know, get it sorted out and and get it, you know, get a new carpet. Thank God. And it's just, oh, it's just like decorating. Man, I, I love wallpapering. Honestly, that's kind of relaxing. But I have to have the whole room or the halls. I have to have it empty. There can't be a thing there because it stresses us out. You know what I mean? So, but I like wallpapering. But painting, man. I get it everywhere. I get it everywhere. I cannot stand it. And at the moment, like we're, we're, within a couple of hours, they come in because we, we're, we're able to, with this carpet, because the bloody price we paid for it, do out other rooms. And we're just going for like a, a, a in all essence, a plastic carpet. That's what they say, polypropylene. It's a plastic carpet. So we can get, we can do the, the two, our bedroom and Reed's bedroom as well. And for the price we're getting for this this one carpet that we paid for the whole thing, that's how much the freaking thing was. Didn't last five minutes. But, you know what I mean? <laughs> Women, men, any, a lot of you. Oh, well, it needs decorating. It's got to, you can't just have a new car without getting decorated. And it's like, oh. So, the final carpet comes today. And it's coming in within possibly an hour. You know what I mean? So, it's just... <laughs> I can see the light. I can, I've never had time for me, you know, my little kind of toys and, you know, things like that. So I'm just in this. I've always got paint on me bloody hair and in my hair or on me face. And like, like, see, if it was wallpaper, I love wallpaper. I'll come round and do yours. Do you know what I mean? I love it. It's like, oh, it's relaxing for us, to be quite honest. There, wherever I have gone with that, this science fiction show we're talking about. And tune in next week, where we t- I'll tell you how to go around corners with wallpapering. <gasps> when you get a corner or a window at the top and you go down, you've got like a window, so you have to tuck it into the window ledge, you know, the window recess. And then at the bottom, there's a plug. You've got to work around the plug as well. And <gasps> when you finish it and you, you final cut, that final bottom cut... And you smooth it down and it's worked. And you're getting it in one sheet, one content. <gasps> there ain't anything better. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah, that much I barely left the 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 